Fantasy tales often have a scene where the heroes receive specific items that are going to come into play later in the quest. Tolkien fans remember the gifts Galadriel gave the Fellowship of the Ring. In the land of Narnia, Father Christmas bestows each of the Pevensey siblings a weapon and a piece of equipment. As a youngster, I would think about which items I'd want to receive. Some seem just obviously better than the others, right? Uh, I mean, Aragorn gets the elf stone, and Sam gets a wooden box, right? So, now, of course, you learn that box was full of earth from Galadriel's orchard and a special seed with a silver shell, which would grow into the only Malorn tree west of the mountains east of the sea. So, it's not as bad as all that. Merry and Pippin, they just get a belt. That's it. They don't get anything else, I don't think, but... In Jacob's final moments, he gives each of his sons a parting word. It sort of reads almost like one of those scenes. His messages apply not just to his son's immediate families, but far into the future when the people of Israel would grow into a great nation of tribes. Jacob's last speech is also the first long-form poem in all the Bible. So let's take a look at it, beginning in verse 1. And Jacob called his sons, and he said, Gather around, and I will tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. Come together and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Both of Jacob's names are used in this poem and in this passage because these men that are being spoken to, the 12 sons of Jacob, they're more than just sons of Jacob. They were now part of Israel, the special consecrated family through whom God was going to send the deliverer of all mankind. They were a peculiar people through whom all nations would be blessed by God. And each of these men would have to decide if they believed what God had said, if they believed in the calling that God had placed on their life and live accordingly, or if they were going to walk away from their calling. Jacob uses the phrase, in the days to come here, This is a term that's used over a dozen times in the Old Testament, and it always has a prophetic context. Jacob is speaking prophetically, and he's aware of it. It looks all the way forward to the messianic kingdom of Christ, but it can also speak of things that were future to the speaker but past to us, right? So Jacob's vision tonight is going to intermingle elements from the conquest of David through the time, uh, sorry, the conquest of Canaan through the time of David all the way into the millennial kingdom, which is yet future for you and I. And that's a common feature of Bible prophecy where there will be a more immediate partial fulfillment, but also a yet to come ultimate fulfillment that will come at what we would call the end of the age. Did the sons want to hear this prophecy? It kind of opens with an invitation, right? Gather around. I want to tell you about things that are going to happen. Did they want to hear the prophecy? Do we? You know, one out of every four verses in the Bible is prophetic in nature or was prophetic in nature when it was delivered. Um, God gives prophecy because he loves to reveal himself and because he does everything he can so that people might really know him and really believe him and see that he's true and see that he has a plan and go his way and uh, go toward life. And so just like Jacob's sons were invited to listen in on this revelation, we too are invited to listen in to God's forecast of the future. That's why here at Calvary we spend a lot of time talking about Bible prophecy because the Bible spends an awful lot of time talking about Bible prophecy too. 
verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my strength, and the first fruits of my virility, excelling in prominence, excelling in power, turbulent as water, you will not excel. Because you got into your father's bed and you defiled it, he got into my bed. Reuben joins the sad list of firstborns ruined by sin in the book of Genesis alongside Cain, Ishmael, Esau, and Ur. He had a lot of potential. He excelled, we're told, in prominence. He excelled in power, but he lacked character. And we've seen little glimpses into just how little character he had as we've been going through, particularly the Joseph story. He sinned with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And we also remember how he put the lives of his own boys up as collateral in one scene back in Genesis 42. He said, I'll make sure something happens, and and to prove it, you can murder my sons if it doesn't happen. Okay, this is not the kind of dad you want to have. God cares about character, not capability. He doesn't need your prominence or your power or your talent. He doesn't. We add nothing to God's greatness, right? It's by grace that he includes us and uses us. He adds all the things to us in spite of our weakness and in spite of our failure. And so he's looking not for capability, but he's looking for character. He's looking for humility. He's looking for godliness. He's looking for faithfulness. It's men and women of character that he lifts up and causes to excel and delights to set apart for special work. Jacob describes Reuben here as turbulent. The term can mean reckless behavior, instability, wildness, as much as weakness. Reuben was spiritually unstable, and because of it, his life spiraled out of control. Spiritual stability is an important thing, and uh, maybe we don't talk about it quite enough, but the truth is the New Testament talks to us about this a lot, the importance of not being blown about in our lives spiritually and, and in the way we look at things and the way we do things, about being rooted and anchored in the truth. That doesn't mean we're never going to adjust the way we think about things, or it's, it's not that we say we're right about everything and we, we never admit that we were wrong about something, but there's a difference between growing in our knowledge and our understanding and being blown about. Uh, one passage in the New Testament talks about being blown about by different wind of doctrine. Or in another passage, it talks about people in the last days just, they listen to this teacher, and then they listen to this teacher, and they're just going all over the place. I believe this now. Now I believe this. Now this is wrong. Now this is wrong. And, and just kind of being really unstable, unstable in the way that they uh, approach their spiritual life, and it causes a problem. Now, this prophecy came true, this one about Reuben, and it shouldn't surprise us. Biblical prophecy always does, but this came true. Reuben's tribe would produce no prophets, no priests, no judges, no kings. In fact, the only famous Reubenites were two guys named Dathan and Abiram. You haven't you probably uh, haven't heard any friends named after them because they were two guys that rebelled against Moses and got swallowed up by the earth. So those are the only two famous Reubenites in the Old Testament. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their knives are vicious weapons. May I never enter their council. May I never join their assembly. For in their anger they kill men, and on a whim they hamstring oxen. Their anger is cursed, for it is strong, and their fury, for it is cruel. I will disperse them throughout Jacob and scatter them throughout Israel. Back in Genesis 34, Simeon and Levi butchered the men of Shechem, uh, young and old, It was a shocking event. It was not sanctioned by the Lord. It was not a good idea. It was not how they should have handled the situation. 
According to Jacob, in this poem, there seemed to be even a, an element of perverse pleasure for them in what they did. They delighted in violence. It was a whim and a fancy for them, uh, and, and that's not a good thing. Jacob was right when he said he, they would be scattered throughout Israel. Uh, most of us are more familiar with a few of the tribes. If you're a Bible student, the Levites are one of them. And of course, the Levites would not receive a geographical inheritance in the promised land. They were scattered in different cities throughout the rest of the tribes of Israel. But it was true what Jacob said here. But let's talk Simeon for a minute. Simeon's portion would end up being within the territory of Judah and was slowly absorbed and and their, their land went away. At the end of the wilderness wandering in Numbers, Simeon was the smallest and weakest of the tribes. In fact, when you get to Deuteronomy chapter 33, Deuteronomy chapter 33 is a very similar passage to this one where Moses, in his parting farewell speech to Israel, he goes through each of the tribes and gives them a few parting words just like this. But in Deuteronomy 33, he doesn't even address Simeon. It's as if they don't even exist anymore. The question then is, why does the tribe of Levi fare so much better? If we're listing top five tribes, right? The tribe of Levi is on that list, right? They're, they're the tribe to be if you're in Israel. I mean, they're, they're a cool tribe. So why are they faring so much better in comparison to Simeon when they're lumped together here in these verses? Uh, these brothers give us a really great object lesson in spiritual faithfulness and in obedience and in redemption because they were two sinners. They were both deserving of the father's curse But even though they were both guilty, there was a chance for redemption. In Exodus 32, hundreds of years after this moment, there's another moment where Moses calls out to Israel, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And what happens? All the Levites gather around Moses in that moment. They stood for the Lord despite what their brothers were doing. And so in that moment, we're told that God redeemed this tribe. And he says, okay, these guys, they're mine. I'm setting them apart for me, for my specific purpose. And now instead of being at the bottom of the barrel, they're going to be, in a sense, at the top of the heap. They're going to serve in the tabernacle and in the temple. They're going to be my special tribe among the special tribes of Israel. And so the Lord redeems them in that moment. He changed their future from cursing to blessing. Simeon had the same option there in Exodus 32, but they did not make that stand, and so they went their way uh, without that tribal redemption that Levi got to experience. Now remember, all of the sons of Jacob heard these words. They are all in the room together. And Jacob is, these are hard words. Jacob is laying out this sin and this judgment on the table. He is cursing some of his sons. I don't know, you know, we've seen this on movies or television, but maybe you've actually had to experience the reading of a contentious will, you know, where it's like to, you know, to this kid, I give this, to this kid, I give this, to this kid, I give nothing. I hope you die, right? I mean, and and it's sad that that kind of thing happens, but what's going on here? Is that what's happening here? Well, Jacob's not being vindictive. I mean, he's speaking as an oracle of God here, but this is a bumpy start (laughs) to the, to these this blessing ceremony, right? He's like, hey, I'm going to bless all of you. I thought this was a blessing ceremony. So far, you've just cursed three of us. It's been bad for these first three sons. And now Jacob turns to Judah, the fourth son, the one whose idea it was to sell Joseph into slavery, the one 
who had all of his own unpleasantness uh, back in chapter 38 with Tamar and his sons and all that kind of stuff. Man, what is Jacob going to say to him? I imagine Judah might be wincing and bracing for impact. Here's what we read in verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Judah is a young lion. My son, you return from the kill. He crouches. He lies down like a lion or a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? So Jacob's words for Judah are full of blessing and praise and greatness and all these wonderful images. And in fact, Jacob identifies him as the kingly ruler, not only of Israel, but we're going to see in a moment of all the peoples of the world. This is an incredible pivot from what we've seen in the first few verses. Why did he get a blessing when his older brothers got a cursing? When in many ways, if you look at their rap sheet, they were kind of guilty of some of the same things. Well, the difference between them was repentance. And we've seen over the last passages how Judah was not a solid guy at first as far as on the pages of Scripture, but he has been transformed in heart and in life because he repented and he decided to go God's way. And now he's become a faithful servant leader. And now he's no longer um, uh, living his life in contradiction to what God has called him to, but he's all in, laying his own life on the line so that his family can fulfill the, the callings and the commands of God. Biblical Hebrew, I'm told, has five different terms for a lion. That's awesome. Uh, Jacob uses one here that in my translation where it says lioness, the term that he's using here, according to linguists, means the king of the beasts. He's using like all these really great images. And, and much of what he has to say about Judah in these verses is in fact fulfilled in Christ Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king of kings, the one who will reign forever and ever and whose kingdom will never end. Verse 10, the scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. He ties his donkey to a vine and the cold of his donkey to the choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine. His teeth are whiter than milk. Is it a prophetic problem that after starting to reign as kings, which the tribe of Judah did when David became king, was, is it a prophetic problem that they were then deposed and exiled into Babylon and in that, for example, right now there's no son of Judah reigning as king in Israel? In fact, Ezekiel in his book references uh, kind of what Jacob is talking about here, the vines and the lions, and he talks about how the lion is going to be captured and put in a Babylonian zoo, effectively. He says, hey, they catch you in a pit, man, and that's what's going to happen to you. So what's going on here? Uh, the answer is that the right to rule has still not departed, and the greatest son of Judah is going to return one day and take what belongs to him and to establish his forever kingdom on the earth. The right is still his. He's still coming. Historians and, you know, Commentators will point out, interestingly, Judah is one of the only tribes you can actually still trace in today's modern world, and they talk about the lost tribes of Israel, but man, Judah is preserved. And we, of course, know that we're not looking for a human king that's going to sit on an Israeli throne. We're waiting for King Jesus, who is the king forever and ever, and he is going to reign in the new Jerusalem. When Christ does come back to establish his kingdom... There will be so much abundance that 
you could, in this image, in verses 10 through 12, you could park your donkey right up next to the vine, and you don't even care about how many of the grapes he eats, right? That's the image. That's what he's saying. He's like, hey, where do I park my donkey? Park him right there, man. He's going to eat all the grapes. Yeah, it doesn't matter. He can have all the grapes that he wants. We have so much. There's so much abundance. There's so much growth. There's so much vibrance. There's so much blessing. There's so much overflowing. Bring the colt too. Tie them there too. Let them eat as much as they want. There will be a worldwide overflow of bounty, specifically pictured here by wine and vineyards in this image. And and this picture gives us a very powerful perspective on that first miracle that Christ worked in Cana of Galilee. What did he do? He turned water into wine. It wasn't just a kind thing he was doing for the caterers at the wedding. It was something much more significant than that. He was demonstrating that not only was he the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, but he has showed up as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. I'm the one who fulfills Jacob's prophecies. When I come to town, bam, this is what happens. Everything overflows in abundance and growth. He's giving us a tiny glimpse of what his kingdom is going to be like, where he just says, that water's wine now, and it doesn't run out. And so this is a great, great thing to connect to the Gospels. Derek Kidner writes this about verses 11 and 12. He says, every line of these verses speaks of exuberant, intoxicating abundance. It is the golden age of the coming one. There's a deliberate excess in the Lord's kingdom where we say goodbye to the sweat and thorns that we've known in this world and are met with extravagant feasting with the greatest king of all. That's the images being given to us here. Verse 13, Zebulun will live by the seashore and will be a harbor for ships. His territory will be next to Sidon. So Zebulun's land in Canaan after the conquest was about 10 miles from the shore and coastal routes flowed through it. And so some people are saying, well, what's up with that? It says that he's on the coast and has ports. So some believe that it's possible that Jacob is actually referring to the tribal land in the millennial kingdom. When you get a chance, you know, look at the difference between the Old Testament allotment of land in Israel for each tribe and then Ezekiel's kingdom allotment. It's kind of cool. In Ezekiel, it stacks all the tribes in like even just vertically. And so in that case, Zebulun's land would stretch to the sea. It's also worth noting that Josephus, the Jewish historian, identifies that Zebulun's land did touch seaports. So sometimes you read this kind of stuff and it's like, well, wait, were they a port town? How does that work? And there's a little bit of mystery to it, but there's a lot of good possible understandings. Verse 14, Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the saddlebags. He saw that his resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he leaned his shoulder to bear a load and became a forced laborer. So commentators are kind of split. It's unclear whether this is meant to be a positive prophecy or or more of a negative prophecy. We hear forced laborer, and that seems bad, but there's no reference to sin or judgment, and so it's kind of a little bit of a question mark. Well, I will say this, that when First Chronicles speaks of Issachar, uh, it speaks positively of the tribe, uh, and you can see that in First Chronicles chapter 12. 
Now, Jacob may mean simply that, hey, this tribe became the worker bee tribe, that they, they did hard work. Some of the other tribes, obviously, Levi becomes the, the priestly tribe, and Judah be the kingly tribe, and we're going to see Asher becomes um, a tribe all about agriculture. And so, it's possible that he's saying, hey, they're, they're going to become like, man, the best workers there are. Uh, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development ranks the USA as the seventh hardest working among their 38 member countries. Not in the whole world. We're way down when, you, <laughs> when they do the whole world. But in their 38 member countries, we're a member. Uh, we're seventh on that list. Mexico is ranked as number one, the hardest working country. The average worker in Mexico clocks in 337 more hours each year than the average American. So that's interesting. Verse 16, Dan will judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a snake by the road, a viper beside the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, Lord. And so now Jacob is starting to see a lot of trouble on the horizon for some of his sons. And he pauses there in verse 18 to pray for the Lord's salvation. And he's reminding himself and his boys that no matter how strong they were, they needed the Lord's protection and provision and intervention if they were going to survive because they had many enemies. And they would make mistakes, which would cause problems. And he says, hey, you need the Lord's salvation. Interestingly, verse 18 is the first and only use of the word salvation in the book of Genesis. And right there where it says Lord at the end, that is the last use of the name Yahweh in the book. There's one place and one place only to find salvation, and that's in Yahweh, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? The, uh, the, the God, three in one. Uh, there's no other name by which men can be saved. Verse 19 says, God, uh, Gad, excuse me, Gad will be attacked by raiders. They are 49ers, I guess. But Gad will be attacked by raiders, but he will attack their heels. One reason Gad was going to have so much trouble is because they decide to settle outside Canaan in what the scholars call the Transjordan. So they're about to go into Canaan, and two and a half tribes come to Moses, and they're like, what if we just don't go in and we just hang out over here instead? Uh, we'll go and help you guys fight your battles on the other side of the Jordan, but we're just going to hang out. Um, and it, you know, it, it's the wrong decision for the wrong reasons. They say, hey, there's great towns and there's great grazing land. And so we just want to stay. We don't want to go in to where the Lord wants us to go in. Well, Moses allows it. God allows it because he's gracious, but it's a real problem for those two and a half tribes. Gad was one of them. They would be attacked over time by the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Arameans, the Assyrians, as a result, they became skilled guerrilla fighters, but at really great cost. Uh, we're told in other parts of the Old Testament that they were experts with spear, experts with shield, expert with sword, expert with bow. But it's because they were way out there exposed to the enemy instead of being near to where the Lord wanted them. Verse 20, Asher's food will be rich. He will produce royal delicacies. They're the foodie tribe. When Moses gave a list of blessings to the tribe in Deuteronomy 33... He calls Asher the most blessed and the most favored among the brothers. And it's true. They became super wealthy in the land. But money can't fix everything, especially spiritual problems. And we find by the book of Judges that as a tribe, they were unable to drive out the Canaanites. They just said they couldn't do it. Their money couldn't do it. They didn't have the strength to do it. They didn't have the faith to do it. And so it says they simply settled among them. 
All right, well, we were supposed to wipe these people out, but why don't we just make them our friends and neighbors and coworkers instead? And the result was disaster, of course. Verse 21, Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. Naphtali is described here in terms of fruitfulness and growth. Moses would later say, Naphtali enjoys approval full of the Lord's blessing. So after all of these brothers, we finally get to Joseph. Um, For the whole poem, about half of the whole poem is dedicated just to Judah and Joseph, if you combine it. Not quite half, but close. And so now we're at Joseph, right? Jacob's favorite. What's he going to say to the ruler of the most powerful empire on the earth? That's who Joseph was at the time. What's he going to say to his favorite son, the, the son that kicked off this whole saga, right? The reason they're in Egypt is because they hated Joseph. They wanted to kill him. They sold him into slavery. God delivered him to Egypt, preserved him there so that he could save the family, get them out of the famine. All this stuff circles around Joseph. You have to understand that Joseph is the most powerful person in the world next to Pharaoh, but Joseph's the one really calling the shots and doing stuff. And Joseph, on top of that, is Jacob's obvious favorite. He is telling people all the time that he's his favorite. So what's he going to say? We have to imagine also the added layer of, I don't know if tension's the right word, but Joseph must have wondered what his dad was going to say because even though he had been given the birthright in the last chapter, which he was, even though Jacob has said, hey, you're effectively going to take my place in leadership of this family. What did we just hear him say to Judah? Jacob said to Judah that, well, Judah is actually going to be the ruler of all Israel and the whole world. What? No, no, I'm the favorite. I'm the prime minister of Egypt. I'm the one with the birthright. I'm the one that saved everybody. I'm the special one that God gave me dreams and visions about how you're going to bow down to me. And, and Jacob says, yeah, Judah's going to be the big boss in the end. And his descendant is going to rule the entire earth. And so Joseph must have been wondering, what is he going to say? It must have been a strange thing for him to listen to what he said to his older brother Judah when you're actually the most powerful ruler in the world and when you think that your tribe is going to be the birthright tribe, your tribe is going to be the preeminent one. So what does he say? Verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine beside a spring. Its branches climb over the wall. The archers attacked him, shot at him, and were hostile toward him. Yet his bow remained steady and his strong arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, by the name of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, by the God of your father who helps you and by the almighty who blesses you with blessings of the heavens above, blessings of the deep that lies below, blessings of the breasts in the womb, the blessings of your father excel the blessings of my ancestors and the bounty of the ancient hills. May they rest on the head of Joseph on the brow of the prince of his brothers." Joseph would be prince, not king. It's very clear. In fact, the term Jacob uses for prince here is never used of a king in the Old Testament. It's not like we think of, well, you're a prince and then you become king, right? The son of the king is the prince and becomes king. That's not the word that he's using. He says, you're a prince, you're not a king. In fact, the word he uses there means someone who is set aside for special acts, and that perfectly describes Joseph, right? Joseph would have to accept the fact that his line was not chosen to rule. 
I mean, he was chosen to, to be used by God to rule in Egypt, but as far as the, the great program and the nation of Israel and the millennial kingdom and all of these things, he's like, no, no, it's not you. It's not your line. It's not your family. Still, his calling was magnificent. How do we see him described here? I mean, these are incredible words that he's receiving from Jacob. We see him described here as a thriving plant fed by a vibrant stream. We see that God was on his side, giving him strength and victory. We see the word blessed being used over and over and over again. With Joseph pictured as an enduring and on the move and adapting and winning victories. Right? All of those things describe us as well as Christians, right? What does the Lord say? He says, I want you to be like a tree planted by rivers of living water. And here's how I'm going to be with you and help you endure. And here's how I'm going to use you. And you're going to be set aside as a, as a special person consecrated for special acts. And you're going to have strength and you're going to have victory. And I'm going to bless, 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 bless in all sorts of ways. And the throne is not for you. You're a royal priesthood. I'm going to bring you into my family and effectively make each one of my sons and daughters a prince or a princess, but the throne belongs to Judah. The throne belongs to King Jesus, right? So you and I as Christians who have been called out and who've been given a birthright that we don't deserve and have been blessed in all these ways and have been, have been uh, you know, uh, providentially used by God for his purposes to help save people and increase the family and all these different things. We're blessed and filled and glorified by God, set aside for special acts, but there is one king and it is not us. And it's never us. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his throne. It's his crown. And you get to the revelation when it's time for the princes and princesses to worship the lion. And what do they do? They cast their crowns down and they say, it is all yours because you alone are worthy. You're the king. It's your throne. It's your rule. It's your dominion. It's your kingdom. And I'm just a guest here by your grace and by your mercy. Now, yes, it's true. We rule and reign with Christ, but we don't rule from his throne. We are used by him to administer his kingdom in a glorious way that we don't deserve. But we need to get ourselves, I think, into the place of Joseph here, where we realize, okay, the Lord has done great things for me, and I'm on top of that, I'm into that, uh, but I need to remember at all times that I am not the king. The Lord Jesus Christ is the king. Verse 27, Benjamin's a wolf. He tears his prey. In the morning, he devours the prey, and in the evening, he divides the plunder. The tribe of Benjamin was known for their bravery and their skill in war. In fact, in Judges 20, we see them fight as a pack and able to hold off the 11 other tribes for a while. There's a pretty ugly scene in the book of Judges, and 11 of the tribes come to fight against the Benjamites, and the the group of Benjamites, they hold them all off for a couple of battles. Benjamin would supply the first king of Israel, Saul, but of course, that wasn't their place, and so Saul's line did not endure. Verse 28, these are the tribes of Israel, 12 in all, and this is what their father said to them. He blessed them, and he blessed each one with a suitable blessing. One commentator asked whether the first three sons agreed with the assessment of verse 28 or not. Uh, The truth is, hey, they received hard words and what we would describe, frankly, as a cursing, but the truth is, it is a blessing to be told the truth, because 
even if the truth stings, even if it reveals a shortcoming or a failure, even if it calls us out onto the carpet where God says, you are wrong, the truth will set us free. And then it was up to them whether they were going to walk in truth or not. Now that the poem was over, was everything locked in stone? Was this an uh, immutable destiny? Should they just sort of live in existential crisis and say, well, there's nothing I can do for good or for evil. I'm just locked in now. Joel Heck writes, Jacob predicted how things would turn out for each of his sons and their descendants should they continue to display the character they had displayed thus far. Now, some elements were absolutely certain and still are, but there was still chance for success or failure depending on how the families developed in their walk with the Lord, right? So Judah and Levi are examples of, of, of how this works. There are certain elements of this prophecy that are absolutely locked in Judah, right? is going to be the kingly tribe no matter what. It's set in stone. Levi, it says, hey, man, you're going to be cursed. And then Levi turned from their sin as a tribe and were redeemed. And so they were able to have a new work that God did through them. And so we see those examples. Verse 29, then he commanded them, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my ancestors in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hethite. The cave is in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in the land of Canaan. This is the field Abraham purchased from Ephron the Hethite as burial property. Abraham and his wife Sarah buried there. Isaac and his wife Rebekah are buried there. I buried Leah there. The field and the cave in it were purchased from the Hethites. When Jacob had finished giving charges to his sons, he drew his feet into the bed, took his last breath, and was gathered to his people. I love that lovely reminder there at the end. Uh, that we have people gathered in love around us right here and now in this life, and we also have people gathered waiting for us in eternity. As Christians, we are part of an amazing family of God that is being built day by day over the millennia, and those who have gone before us are ready to welcome each of us home, and they're going to gather us home to heaven one day. After so many years of heartbreak and unfair living Leah is finally elevated, right? She's there. She's the one that is in the cave. Uh, But it's interesting, one of the commentators points out, even here, Jacob couldn't bring himself to call her his wife. You notice that? He says, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, I buried Leah there. Yikes. (laughs) It's just, you know, Jacob wasn't perfect, but the Lord was doing a work in his life. This passage is not a prophecy for the church or for Gentiles, except for in very limited aspects. There are a couple of devotional applications we can make from the broad strokes of what we see here as we close. First, we notice that at the end of his life, Jacob was a blessing machine, right? He blessed Pharaoh, he blessed Joseph, he blessed Ephraim, he blessed Manasseh, he blessed his sons. But being a blessing did not mean that he overlooked sin, that he accepted sin, that he celebrated sin, that he tolerated any of that. Much the contrary, he delivered the truth in love, but he, he did not celebrate anybody's sin. He didn't tell Pharaoh, what you're doing is fine. Simeon, Levi, Osalva, who even cares anymore? It's all love. Who cares? Much the contrary. And so we need to deliver the truth in love as well. Second, when we consider the first three sons and how they received cursing instead of blessing, we have to remind ourselves that it wasn't because Jacob was mad. It was because they had embraced sin. If we go back to the analogy at the beginning of of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Narnia, right? In the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when those gifts are handed out by Father Christmas, those precious things, the one brother, Edmund, receives nothing. Why? 
because he wasn't there. He had given in to greed and to jealousy. He joined the white witch and then became her prisoner as a result. Now, in the end, he was redeemed, but the cost was high, and he forfeited some of those gifts that he could have had. And so, there's a great object lesson from the mind of C.S. Lewis there. And so, repent of your sin, be set free, walk with God, receive the overflow of his gifts and power. Don't miss out on it. If you've made a mistake in your past, turn from it, be washed by God's life-changing redemption, move forward in his grace toward a glorious future. So the story of Jacob's life ends in Genesis 49, but the story of Israel continues to this day. In fact, we look forward to many of these prophecies still to be fulfilled by our Lord in his millennial kingdom, where he will rule from his throne, where we will rule with him, see him face to face, feast with him, glory with him forever and ever.